0: And today, we're going to find out what happens when adversity in life challenges us to reach for something bigger than ourselves. Our guest is Les Mason, a firefighter from Edinburgh, Scotland. Over the past few years, Les and his wife Alana have experienced a personal challenge that's left them feeling a sort of disharmony with Mother Nature. In an effort to take back control, Les decided to take on a whole different challenge to create some space from the one he was in and to be able to find a way to bring the two together in a very positive way. This is an incredible story of perseverance, and I can't wait to share it with you all. Les, welcome to the campfire.
1: Hi, Scott. Thanks for being on. It's great to be
0: here. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I've just been looking at some pictures and and checking out this journey that you took, and I can't wait to share it with our listeners. Um, Let's start with Les Mason's day-to-day life in Scotland. Tell us tell us a little bit about you and, and what life looks like for you.
1: Yeah, perfect. So my, my wife and I stay approximately eight miles south of Scotland's capital city, in Edinburgh. And we have our energetic two-year-old dog who lives with us as well. And he takes up most of our time. It, it, it can be quite destructive at points. So he, he takes a lot of work. Um, my wife works in Real estate, as we call it in the US, so she um, buys and sells property, values property, etc. And I'm a firefighter, so I joined the fire service 2002. So coming up for 20 years now of, of being the
0: fire service. Yeah, it's amazing. So, so you're a day-to-day hero. You're a first responder in Scotland and taking care of issues on a day-to-day basis. And you know how you know what that's like.
1: Yes, thankfully, day-to-day is a lot more routine than it is life-saving which for some of the fire services is, is good because we like people to be safe and for people to be good about their lives but yeah it's certainly been um it's been a very exciting 20-year career at points so there's been a lot of things that i've been involved in which have have been challenging yeah
0: So we're here today to talk about an adventure that you took, an incredible adventure where you crossed the country of Scotland from coast to coast in an incredible way, and I'm going to let you tell that story, but there was a series of events that sort of led you to that point. So do you mind sharing the story with us and telling us kind of what led you to this adventure that we're going to talk about today?
1: Yeah, of course, Um, it's probably a good way to actually set the scene too, Scott, so my wife and I have been married for eight years now, and over the course of our marriage, we've had four miscarriages. Mm. Um, each and every one has obviously been very, very tragic, and that affected yes. us um, both in terms of our mental health, but also our kind of outlook on life. That we found that the subject of miscarriage and baby loss and stillbirth is it's still very taboo. So, if you were to break your leg, for example, people would offer you sympathy, you would know how to be with someone who has a broken leg because they can see what's happened, they can they can help you walk about, they can do lots of things for you. But with miscarriage and with infant baby loss, etc., people just don't know how to be around that because it's not something that's really spoken about. And it should be because one in four pregnancies end in a miscarriage. So there's probably odds on chance that a lot of females will experience a miscarriage in their life but we just don't, don't talk about it and after the the kind of first miscarriage we're getting comments like bill just just try again just, just go again but if someone had broken the leg you wouldn't say to that person well just don't break your leg again you wouldn't do that so i see that to a mother who's just lost a child so i think we wanted to encourage that Conversation and to be very open about look. This is what's happened. This is what we feel. This is how we should be having this conversation around miscarriage. Not you know, treat it this kind of taboo subject that isn't really spoken about. But we all know what happens. So, my wife and I sought to undertake a very inspiring, headline-grabbing event where. I would look to go up against Mother Nature and the challenges that, 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 that she would throw and hopefully get through the other side to show that although things such as miscarriage, as tragic as they are, there is the potential to go up against Mother Nature and actually have benefits off the back end of that. So in true forest Gump style, I, I chose to start on the east coast of Scotland and just cut a straight line right across the country and not stop until I got to the Atlantic coast on the, on the west side of of the country.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. So, so you set across on this journey to go coast to coast, but it wasn't just, you know, you you made it a little bit more challenging because you put a timeline on it. Let's talk about that. So we set a very
1: ambitious time of doing it in less than 24 hours. So it was 200 kilometers in length, Um, and they would only use human power alone. So there'd be no motorized transport at all, other than for the people who were supporting me. So I'd be cycling, swimming, rowing, running, and climbing across the highlands of Scotland in this um, straight line corridor until we completed the event. And they would do it in less than 24 hours.
0: Yeah, I mean this. This is mind blowing to me. I think so. First of all, um, 200 kilometers, I believe, is like 125 miles ish. Yeah, sorry, yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. So for for those of us here in the U.S., yeah, 125 miles. But this isn't just this isn't just flat terrain either. Um, can you oh. talk to us about like what what is the terrain like from one coast to the other? The whole country of Scotland varies. where, so if you're kind of in the southern part of the country, it's very like. Ro-
1: Rolling hills, etc. But the further north you go, the more mountainous it becomes. So mm-hmm. where we were in, the, in, in in Scotland, we started in the kind of southern Highlands. So we were just at the, the kind of southern edge of the mountainous areas. And pretty much the, the the only flat section of the event was the the row and the swim because they they were on water. Everything else that was across land was up and down hills. I think in total the total climb was 7,200 meters, which is half the height of Mount Everest roughly. So over the course of the event, we did half the height of Mount Everest all in.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. So can, can you break it down, like rowing, swimming, cycling, running across yep. 125 miles in less than in 24 hours? Can you break down each one of the, into the events to kind of give us a, a breakdown of what each one of those looked like?
1: Yeah, of course. So we, um, the... The event started, there's a, there's a small fishing town called Montrose on the east coast of Scotland, so it's got a coastline with the North Sea, and if you kept on going east, you eventually, you eventually hit um, Denmark, mainland Europe, etc. So it, it, it sits pretty high up on the latitude, and we left Montrose by, by bicycle and we cycled for 80 miles, so they, the event started at 7pm at night, so it would done a lot of planning and we wanted to do most of the cycling at night when it was dark because it would mean that the roads were a lot quieter, sure. there'd be a lot of traffic and stuff as well, so it'd be a lot safer, but also meant that the events which followed after that would then be in daylight as well, so it'd be a lot safer for the events which followed. So we cycled for roughly 80 miles through the night. Um, the weather was not kind, it was really, really high winds, driving rain, had to Change my clothing three times because we're just satur- saturated through and we had three checkpoints along the way so I would cycle into a pre-arrange point where there'd be a team waiting for me with change of clothes, food, drink, any bicycle servicing that had to get done almost like a pit stop any t- idea. I would stop for less than five minutes and then I'd be back out on the road again and cycle through the night till about roughly 1am in the the morning. So we're cycling from 7am until 1am, more or less non-stop and really um, undulating terrain is probably the the best word of it. It was very, very hilly. Yeah, okay. Up and down. And at 1am I ditched the bike and I entered into a a loch, as, as we call it in Scotland, or it's quite a lake in the US. So yep. we had a kilometre swim, and on the other side of the bank from this th- this lake, we set up a very, very bright searchlight. So when we were in, in the water, we knew where to aim for because it was just pitch black, but there was nothing. This is you and, and the, the, this big lake. So we swam um, myself, Gary, and uh, Jill, who were my teammates for the swim section. We swam across the lake at night. Exceeded the water about 120, roughly. Then went back on the bike for a further five miles to to the, the start of where the where the row would take place.
0: Yeah, so, so I going to go back. I'm trying to envision this in my head. So you're in the you're in the dark swimming, and you're basically yeah. just swimming towards the light, essentially. Yes,
1: because of um, where it was in the Highlands, there's no there's no street lights, there's no towns, there's no houses, so there's no real points of reference at all it's just just a black
0: yeah and it's pitch dark swim to the light that, that's yeah. incredible all right so then you jump off the jump out of the water back on the bike five kilometers on the bike yeah so roughly
1: three miles to the, the first um in a small village okay that i stopped in the firehouse of that village for probably a good um hot food hot drinks
0: nice
1: and we got our kayaks from the support trailer and we entered A huge lake which is called Loch Loch Ranach, and that was a 10 mile row on the lake. Um, We set off just as the sun was rising because, again, there's no points of reference at all, so we didn't want to be rowing in the dark because we could just be going around in circles for all we know because there was no no bearings at all. So we, we, we rowed for 10 miles and the weather had changed markedly at that point. So it was a beautiful morning. The, the, the water was calm, it was flat. And it was good to finally rest my legs and just 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 rope and just, just just paddle along for a few hours. It was, it was beautiful. It was such a beautiful morning with the, the sun rising, mountains, all, all the birds tweeting and stuff. It was just it was phenomenal.
0: Yeah, so you actually shared some photos with me, and I'll make sure that those are in the show notes. But some of my favorite pictures were just the kayak in the very calm water. Um, and that, you're painting the picture here for the listeners of the beautiful morning. But the pictures, if you want to jump over to the show notes, there's some great photos there.
1: I think what was good about the row was that it was a real contrast to the to the cycle, so that the, the, the cycle was. Pretty severe weather, severe winds, severe rain, severe mm-hmm. hills. It was just movement. It was just you oh, know sweat and stress, trying to get through it. Then you're slowly paddling in the in the lake swimming, so it's getting more and more tranquil. And by the time you come into the kayak, you know the, the, this weather window's basically blown over, and it's now just a beautiful, beautiful morning. And it's so quiet and it's so tranquil. It was a it was a good rest. I think had we had to had to row in that wind as well that would be almost on the point of not being achievable because it
0: was a really gifted some grace there for a beautiful morning on the water that's awesome so 10 miles or so on the kayak yep
1: and then the biggest challenge of also exited the kayak and basically went on foot for the remaining 30 miles of the of the course so we've done roughly about 100 miles at this point um all in and the remaining 30 miles were across an area called Ranachmur. It was like this this big, um, wide open plain almost. Okay. And that was about midday. And that's probably been, I would say, that was the lowest point of the event because at this point, I'm very fatigued. And um, why I hadn't factored in was although our event started at 7 p.m., I'd actually been awake since 7 a.m. that morning getting Trucks and bicycles and the boats and things and all the food together. So I'd to actually already been on the go for more than 24 hours.
0: Right.
1: So at that point, that was probably the, the um, lowest point. I was getting really hot as well. So it's this really wide open plane. I'm probably a bit dehydrated, a bit underfed, tired. Yeah. If the sun's coming down, and the, there's mountains in the, in the distance of this plane, but no matter how much you run, they never move. So it's yes. like they're, they're never getting any closer, and that was probably the, the kind of toughest mental battle for me was getting across that plane because it was just a slog, and you seem to be making absolutely no no progress at all.
0: Yeah, and you're tired, and you're seeing those mountains, and you know you still have to go over those mountains.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: So what time is it when you when you start that last thirty miles on foot? How much time do you have left to the twenty four hour mark? Probably about. Eight hours at that point, I would say. Okay, all right. Yeah, so I'm basically um, hitting the, the,
1: the run just before midday. So it's probably about half past 10, 11 o'clock in the morning we we're, okay. were on the run.
0: Okay, all right. So so we're slogging through the plane, and then we've got a mountain to, to climb.
1: Several mountains, yeah. So the, the um final part, um, and the reason mm-hmm. I would like to do this this section in, in, in daylight, there's a there's a mountain ridge in Scotland called the Anaheagic Ridge, and it's the, deemed to be the most difficult horizontal scramble in the country. So it sits 950 meters above sea level, so you're, you're pretty high up. Yeah. And it's, it's not a vertical drop, but there is a kind of sheer drop off of both sides, and it's extremely narrow in places. So on, on certain points, you're on your, your hands and knees kind of... Picking your way over that this thing and doing that with very tired legs, very tired eyes and head and arms and things like that are really really challenging. Because you had to, you had to gain the height. So from sea level, so you you're coming across the plane. You then basically start from zero feet at sea level, then gain yeah. that nine fifty metres up. To right. Sort of the and as I say, that that's where the that's where the the, the, the fatigue really began to to happen because you're, you're thinking about everything you've done to this point but you're looking up at this thing sheer hell we have to get up and you're just thinking have have my legs got anything left at all
0: you definitely saved the best for last <laughs> <laughs> going up over this thing and and again i want to refer back to the photos that you sent me and please listeners i'd love for you to jump over to the show notes because First of all, I mean, they're majestic mountains. It's absolutely beautiful. But also just to think that, you know, this is these are mountains that you're going to climb up and over in this 24 hour period. And at this point, you've only got eight hours left, maybe even less than that, because you've run the planes at this point. So, uh, yes. I mean, that I, I want to hear about the ridge and this up and over, because it, you know, from these pictures, you, you were you're you're on your knees, you're using your hands. This was not just hiking. You know, this wasn't just a walk. Yes. Yeah. So I-
1: as part of the um, as part of the planning for the event, we'd gone up the months before, I and mean, we basically we'd done a recce or a reconnaissance of all, all the routes. So we'd driven and walked elements of the cycle section, we'd assessed the the banks of the lake for for the kayaks, etc., and we'd also done the Anachyegic Ridge mm-hmm. the month before, so we could uh, identify areas of concern. And when we did the recce it was a beautiful day it was sunny it was dry it was great we, we flew along it It was no, no, no problem at all on the day of the event it was raining so all the rocks were very very slippery right so you would put your foot on a a, a, a small ledge to, to, to do a climb and it would just slip off so I had um, my friend Stephen was with us and Stephen's a very accomplished mountaineer so he brought like ropes and harnesses and grabs and things so we knew that if it got to the point where it was so dangerous we would use ropes and we would basically climb the thing but the time that it would take to set all that up would be right. us beyond the 24-hour target because that would slow us right down so sure. prior to the event we made a big What was myself and him? Um, 12 support staff, we made the agreement that we would never compromise safety to to get it. We would always aim to finish it safely rather than aim to finish it in 24 hours, but being so close to the end, I got probably what's termed as summit fever, where I wanted to finish in that time because I knew that I could do it, and I knew that if I'd done it, I would be the first person to to ever do it. So we're kind of huddled together on this this cliff top saying, are we going to use the ropes and we, we kind of agreed that we know the route over this ridge because we've done it before so we know where the handholds are and what, what route to take as long as we take our time and we be cautious and we check every single handhold then we'll just basically free climate because it's quicker right. and we're happy that we can still do it safely you know as ever never never compromised anyone's safety to get this challenge done and that was probably the, the biggest key moment of the event was looking at the risks that we had and making that judgment of saying, is it worthwhile carrying on the way that we are to achieve this objective? Then in the end, we said yes, but the whole ridge is about six miles in length, all in, but there's a very short, roughly one to one and a half mile section, which is the, the most exposed. Yeah, and it is it's literally it's like a, a a pinnacle with his drops off on, on on both sides. As we came off that there's a big boulder field so there's lots and lots of boulders and stones and things like that. And I was so tired that my my eyes were going a lot slower. So when I put my foot down expecting to go on a rock, my head was too slow to realize that the rock was actually further ahead so I would misstep, I would fall over and my, my friends Stephen and Lee thought this was hilarious because they were watching me fall over all the time. And between me falling over and them laughing, I had my first proper sense of humour failure. And I picked up a rock and just smashed it off the ground and screamed. And this, this rock just blew up.
0: <laughs> Love it. I was,
1: I was basically, I was looking at, I could almost see the, the, the finishing line back down at, at sea level. And I thought, with well, a mile to go, I'm going to break a leg here and I'm going to finish all this thing. My friend's laughing as well. So we've had lots of high points along the way, but we're mainly laughing at me being so fatigued. That was the kind of part of the jokes
0: almost. That was the final burst of energy, though, grabbing that rock. and
1: Yeah. 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 Because they, they they still talk to it to this day. They... We're not expecting it at all, but I think at that point you've so much energy and to get you into, know, where you think is the end. Yeah. And um, to, to think I'm going to injure myself, people are laughing at me, and you just smash smash the rocket. with just sheer frustration at the, the lack of progress that was made.
0: Yeah. So what? Tell me what 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 did that feel like to be that fatigued and like what's the decision making process like? Because I mean I, I I fully respect you guys. I think that's great. You have. Uh, this commitment to safety and as you should and so as you kind of get that summit fever what is that what and you're fatigued like what is that decision making feeling like so when i was i've I've always believed scott that to to get something done pick
1: a team that's better than than you are so i'd gone out to my friends and colleagues and i had 12 people who had volunteered to assist either as checkpoint staff or to do various sections with me. So when I was doing the cycling, I had my friend Stephen and my friend Jill. So Jill was a represented Great Britain in triathlons. So I knew that for cycling, Stephen and Jill were far better than me. So they could make better choices because they were more experienced. Again, I was in the water with Gary and Jill. They were better swimmers than I was. So they could make those calls likewise with the, the role with Lee he was an accomplished kayaker, and I wasn't So every single sex had someone that was better than me. And that meant that because they were fresh into that evolution that they, they came through, they were better placed to make choices based on their experience and their judgment. And I always said that I would defer to their judgment, because I, I would, would probably be at a stage where I was too fatigued to make good choices. And I would trust and defer to them to make them for me. So it's uh, very much surround yourself with better people and they will take care of you. I,
0: I I love this so much. This is this is so profound, and it's like this is a life lesson that you can apply to so many things. You did this epic journey from coast to coast, and there were these different segments. Um, but ultimately you were the instrument. And as you said, you had experts that were more advanced than you in each individual segment, and you had them there, and you trusted them to essentially make the decisions for you, and you showed up and kind of went through the motions. I mean, isn't that, it's it's such a metaphor for life, right? Yeah, I I, I said at the start that although I
1: would be the only person doing the the full route nonstop, I would be the only constant throughout. I would rely on every single person to basically drag me along to the next section because when I started to flag, I'd have to rely on someone else in that team to bring me up to the standard, Hmm. to make the time to make the cut off to get to the next person. So I'm firmly confident in my belief that had I not had that good team with me, I probably flagged a lot or I would have made wrong decisions purely because of fatigue or looking for an easy way out because at that point you are so fatigued that there's elements that you just want at the end but you've got the team taking you with you taking you with them and that's how i ultimately got to the end of it was with 14 of us yeah
0: i and you know it's smart that you did that it would have been dangerous if you didn't but you know, I just I love I love that life metaphor. I think that's so cool. Now, when you said you got to the top of the ridge, you said you could kind of look over and and almost see the finish line from where you were. And so yeah. I'm curious, like I you know I kind of felt that with you as you said that because you've come across at this point you're probably you're well over a hundred miles. You don't actually you think you said you only had a couple of miles left at that point. And so you know, kind of being at that was that was that like a point where you kind of looked down and you kind of thought to yourself like you know, I'm all but there. I'm curious what that feeling was like to be able to see the finish line from that high vantage point. I think we had done so much planning
1: and so much preparation and so much fitness training that finishing the event was never in doubt. Mm-hmm. But when I came off the ridge, because there was a large uh, iron bridge at the end and I knew that when I was looking from the mountaintop down onto this iron bridge, it was probably about five kilometers away. I thought, that's the end. And I've got about one hour 20 to get there. Right. This is eminently doable. I can definitely do this if I move and shift now and, and get there. And probably coming down from that mountain was the first time that I'd dare to dream that we're actually going to do it because when we started the event, we, we, we were breaking new ground. It had never been done before. We looked at the maps, we judged time and distance and speed, etc. we knew that it was theoretically it could be done because the maps told us that and the maths said that, that, that it could be done. But because we'd we got up against such harsh weather, and we'd had setbacks with, with fatigue and all the rocks being slippery, the thought of doing it was getting further and further away from me because I thought we're just we're, we're ticking by time so much here. But when I looked down and saw the bridge and saw the time that I had left, I thought I got this burst of adrenaline thinking I can actually do this because we'd had six months of planning, talking to the media, there was a lot of focus on this, a lot of onisness. I thought, I'm actually going to pull this off if I get my backside off this hill and I get moving and I actually just whatever I've got left, just use it to get to the end. And I can rest at the end. I can I can no fear feel sorry for myself once it's finished, but don't feel sorry for yourself now because you're not there yet yeah. and it, it, it worked, it worked.
0: Yeah, coming down is not a is not a walk in the park. I, I know that. <laughs> so you come down the other side of the ridge, you come down back to sea level, you come across, and you get to the finish line. And I, um, you also shared a video with me of you crossing the finish line, and there was an embrace with your wife at the end. And I want to know what that felt like.
1: Yeah. So at the finishing line, the the support team had set up um, banners, and they got. St- champagne and stuff like that. But Alana, my wife, was very much front and center. So when I came across the finish line, my support team had all kind of to the wings almost, and it was just Alana. And it was just, I I, I hugged her and it was like sick. Well, it was actually like, you know, five or six years of heartbreak with the miscarriage. But then this intense six months of planning and media, because although I'd done the event, Alana was very much a linchpin in everything that happened because she'd been there throughout. And it was this kind of feeling that, you know, we've, 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 we've done it. We've raised the awareness of miscarriage. We've gone through the, these four tragedies of losing children. We've crossed the country. We've gone up against storms and mountains, and we're, we're, we're both here. And if physically we can do that, and if our marriage can endure all that stuff as well, we're actually going to be okay you know it's that feeling that even if we never have a child because of whatever's happening you know it, it doesn't matter we've endured everything we've endured so much more that than most managers will endure and we've got through it so we're actually going to be okay and that that embrace just made it all worthwhile i would say
0: yeah what did it feel like to you
1: it felt surreal because there's a point when you cross the finishing line and everything stops. So your your heart rate comes down, your your mind starts to stop, stop thinking about you know routes and times and try to make up time. And there's this huge dump of emotion and relief because everything that's dominated your life for the past six months has now stopped. And you know we're getting like messages on social media and things all, all, all come through. Things going up on. On Facebook from the fire service to see that I'd done it, and I can't remember any of it because I was <laughs> just zoned out. We, um, we, we had a, we had a major sponsor came up, which was a, a very um, well-known Scotch whisky company, and they put us all up in a hotel at the end. And Alana had to bath me because I was just sitting in the bath, just slumped. And she, she had to wash me, dress me for dinner, and I was just. <laughs> Completely empty. I had nothing left at all. Did you sleep for a while afterwards? Yes. Yeah. I <laughs> went down to the bar. I had one or two beers, one whiskey, and I went to bed. And I slept for about twelve hours.
0: Yeah. So here, here's the the magic question, uh, yeah. Les. What what did the clock say when you came across that finish line?
1: Twenty three hours and twenty seven minutes.
0: Twenty three hours and 27 minutes. The goal was to do it in under 24 and you did it with time to spare. Yeah, so I think to me, that demonstrated
1: that our planning, our time checkpoints, everything had been done properly. You know, we'd done this to the absolute best. I couldn't have gone any faster. I I, I was maxing out effort on every single evolution. had the weather been kind of up on on the cycle, possibly a little, little bit quicker, but I think the weather on the cycle made it even more of a challenge, which made it even even more of a personal achievement for me. I think so. Yeah. Um, as a as a team, we're all very happy that we'd all we'd all done our jobs to to get me across the finishing line for that time.
0: Yeah. So so are you the first to have accomplished this that you know of? Yeah, uh,
1: yep it was the the first straight line crossing across Scotland in a single time frame.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. So do you think uh, you, do you think you're going to start a movement and that there's going to be people that are going to follow? Because this is, that's an epic adventure. It sounds like fun. I mean, we've got uh, ultra marathons, um, and this is like taking the ultra marathon to a whole nother level.
1: Yeah, we we'd like to do it again, but perhaps do it in stages and and actually enjoy it, or potentially do the south coast to the north coast in a, in a straight line, but that's about 500 miles, so that that that'd be a bigger undertaking. But that's, mm. um, I'd be very annoyed if someone did south to north and, okay, beat me <laughs> doing them both. There you go. I feel it's, it's cool good to, to do that as well.
0: There you go. Les, so you had 12 12 people on your team. Some of them participated at different as, uh, different segments with you. You had people at different checkpoints and stops to make sure that you were fed and kind of helping you along the way. Uh, what was the common thread that helped that allowed you to sort of rally all 12 of those folks folks to get them excited to to want to be part of this? I think because they were all close friends and colleagues,
1: they they knew what Alana and I had had gone through with mm-hmm. the miscarriages. And they knew how much it, it meant to us to get this message across and to raise money for the charity. And they knew that they wanted to 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 be part of contributing to that success. And I think on a on a personal level as well, I knew that they had faith in me to actually do it. So they they knew that I'd been doing the training, we've been doing the planning, we're taking this very, very seriously. And if they bought into it and if they supported us. It would be a successful undertaking, but I think I think because they were they were just very very good friends, and it was it was a very exciting thing to be part of as well.
0: How did that feel to you to have twelve people that were willing to commit such a big part of their lives to help you accomplish this big goal? That that speaks to the power of the friendship that you have with them.
1: It does it does yeah? I think um, it also speaks to their appetite to do stupid things outdoors, which which, <laughs> which they all do. But yeah, I think. Um, First and foremost it was that, that desire to help. Yeah. Was 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 just the, the, the core thread of everything that we went through, every single aspect of the of the event. It was helping a friend or, or friends with, with Alana who you knew had gone through a rough ride and who who had to do this. You know, we I dread to think what our mental health would have been had we then not pulled this off, because that would have been our our failure to compound all the grief beforehand as well. So I think they they understood what, what it meant to us to to, to get this done
0: yeah and i suspect that they knew there was something bigger in this that this was bigger than than each of the individuals on the team and and uh that that it was going to lead to bigger things and i I definitely want to get into that but uh one of the things that you and i spoke about before we we uh we started recording this call the first time that we met we kind of talked a little bit about sort of what inspired you to take on this particular challenge you guys experienced um, some grief and some adversity uh with the miscarriages but there's all kinds of different things that you could have chosen, but you chose this particular challenge. And I'm just curious, like, what was it? Like, what, what things kind of occurred, like, earlier on in life that kind of led you to this sort of, this this particular adventure?
1: Well, I was at school, I was the, the kind of
0: stereotypical
1: overweight kid. You know, um, back at school in the 80s in, in the UK, the only sport you had on offer was football or soccer as we call it in the US and because I had absolutely no skill whatsoever in, in soccer, I was basically led to believe that I was therefore useless at sport because I couldn't play sport. And so you know, it's that kind of there's that saying that if you judge a fish by how it can climb a tree, the fish will think it's stupid. And, and it wasn't, it was simply I'd grown up because I couldn't play football and because that was the only sport I tried, I thought I'm useless at, 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 at sport. It's just not what I do. Then when I went to high school, I met a teacher, um, Mr. Murdoch, who was a mountain leader. He was in the hill, hill walking, cycling, mountaineering, and he established a, a club in the school to take pupils into the mountains. And I joined, and it was a complete revelation for him because it was rather than simply being a pursuit where you have to score a goal or one to a certain point. In the mountains, you've got fitness, but you've also got planning your route, checking your weather, making decisions, being re- resilient and stuff. And I found this kind of world of fitness and out- outdoors and adventure in the outdoors that I didn't know existed. And that basically sparked a passion for me about being in the mountains and being outside. Mm-hmm. Because I'd always been this kid that was trying to chase a football about it to absolutely no effect. But I was only given the chance to see we're going to climb to the top of this mountain. And when you get there, well, you've now achieved that. And the, the feeling of achievement was something that a lot of kids at school probably hadn't ever achieved before. Yeah. So, when I then left high school, I got a job as an instructor at a kid's adventure camp where i was taking kids climbing, abseiling hill locking canoeing through all these different outdoor pursuits and trying to teach these kids that if you can't play basketball or you can't play soccer there's so much more you can do which gets you active gets you outside builds your confidence builds your teamwork and ability and for me i think that the outdoors is the best non-academic classroom you've got because you can learn so much about yourself, nature. You can build strength and resilience and being outdoors in tough conditions. And that sparked a kind of flame for me thereafter that just
0: always continued. Can you talk about that? Because that's a huge uh, subject for this podcast, that spark yeah. that you just talked about. You said the outdoors and, um, you know, related nature, it it created a spark for you. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, it's, I, it's very hard to actually quantify what it was or what led to that. But for me, I think, especially nowadays where you're, you're, you're tied to a mobile phone or a laptop, etc., so just being outside with your thoughts, going where you want to go as fast or as slow as you want to go, it's probably an element of life now that a lot of adults have lost because we're just we're dictated to by, by work and by social media. And... Mm-hmm. We'll never take stock. We'll never take that time to just put the phone away, go outside, just spend time with yourself. And I think certainly going through the, the kind of grief of miscarriages or spending time out, out, outdoors allowed you to compound and process what thoughts because you were away in this world where you know in a, in a huge mountain range, your worries are actually pretty small because of that that's this huge horizon in front of you and it, it put a lot of it into context and also for me no matter what perceived failures there were with miscarriage i could still climb a mountain and i could still be in control of certain events whether it's planning mm-hmm. making choices etc on the hill and i think there's there's so much that very doors can can give you as a human being if you yeah. dare to go in, in, into that environment. Yeah.
0: Well, you you got it done, and and you got it done with uh, with thirty three minutes to spare. It's really yeah. an amazing accomplishment. I I want to uh, just kind of wrap up with uh, just a little bit of discussion about you know the awareness that you were trying to create with this event for miscarriage. So can you kind of talk to us because I you had a bunch of media coverage. This was a big deal in Scotland, and so can you talk about like how what you did and this accomplishment has fed the awareness of miscarriage and 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 having the conversation you talked about the taboo can can we get into that a little bit
1: yeah so grief that you get around miscarriage is it's a very strange grief because you you haven't lost anyone you know it's not a Mm -hmm. it's not a bereavement as such you've more you've more lost the hopes and dreams of the future rather than actually losing someone that that, that you knew so it's a very strange type of loss to to come to terms with Mm -hmm. And I think because of that, it requires its own specialist type of support because it's a very emotionally led loss rather than a physical loss of someone who was in your life. Now, the only introduction that that we had to our kids was a a scan. We saw the heartbeat we saw everything else. We never met that child. So cynics would say, well, you've not lost anyone, but we we saw the heartbeat. So we did because that was a human life that was there, but it wasn't wasn't um, on this earth, but it was a life. So it took us to some pretty dark places in regards to our own me- mental health um, because it's there is support there. But I think because you feel that your grief is almost false to an extent, you perhaps don't a- access that, that, that support. And I've now become a passionate ambassador for mental health, and in particular, male mental health, because I think the fire service is excellent, but I probably in the past tried to live up to that stereotype of being a macho firefighter who lifted weights and climbed mountains and, you know, did all this strong stuff, which looking back on it, it was just, it was just a very, very thin veneer of a, a, a human being not wanting to come to terms with what had happened and not wanting to deal with it. So yeah. by talking to the media, so we have um, a very good media team. In the fire service. So I spoke to Irina, who's our comms manager, and she said, you've definitely got a story which will resonate with thousands of people. And it's something which the media will want to run because it's something that you have to start talking about. So Irina was very much front and centre of coordinating that media liaison. So we gave interviews to the Daily Record newspaper, who then ran a story in the Sunday Mail, and I then began getting letters and cards being sent to the fire station from people who had also gone through that. So it, we achieved the aim of getting people thinking differently about what baby loss is, what bere- bereavement is, and through through miscarriage, and we hoped, particularly for male mental health, by opening up and saying. This has happened. I actually struggled quite a lot, but I got through it through physical activity, talking to friends, being open about it. You know, just processing and dealing with what happened. And I got through the other side. And I think we've 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 got that message out there, and we're seeing more and more now on social media, etc., about baby loss awareness. It's and a thing. I'm not. Not because of what what we did, but because there's a there's a kind of momentum now building where it's it's not a, it's not a taboo thing, or it's not it's not as taboo as it once was. Yeah. We we should be normalising talking about this because it happens to 25 of women, and you yeah. so know obviously each woman will have a partner, whether it's a male, same sex, etc. So it's it's going to influence and impact a lot of people. So why not talk about it?
0: Yeah. Well, you guys are a huge inspiration and I love that you're bringing the awareness to it. And and I agree. I mean, it's, it's so common. I mean, my wife and I experienced it as well. It's, you know, it's just, it's such a common thing. And, um, Uh, you know although it doesn't help when somebody you know when it happens to you it's still deeply an emotional thing so um you know i I think that what you guys are doing and bringing the awareness to it is amazing i think um that i'd love for you to share there was a charity that you guys had uh connected to in this event that you guys supported i'd love for you to just kind of share with the listeners about that charity
1: yeah tell us what it's a it's a uk-based charity called tommy's Mm -hmm. and they they fund Scientific research into miscarriage and stillbirth, neonatal death, and they also fund support services for families of them um, bereaved people who have gone through child loss.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, that's that's awesome, and we'll we'll put a link if uh, we'll put a link in the show notes if people yeah. are interested in that. So to wrap things up here. Uh, Les, I've got two questions that I ask everybody that comes on the podcast. And so, you know, at some point they're going to make a movie about this epic adventure that you took across Scotland and, uh, a, a Hollywood movie. And I want to know who the actor is, is going to be, that's going to play you in this movie.
1: i be someone really good looking for a start, I would say. Um, oh, I think, um, I think I be a good role for Bill Ferrell because there might be lots of Stumbles and things along the way, but you always come good in the end. And I know that you're watching the movies that Will Ferrell's in. I love it. He always has the best of intentions throughout, but he might take a difficult route to get there. But you always good <laughs> at the end. So I think it'd be it'd be suited to, to Will Ferrell. I
0: would say. That's awesome. Will Ferrell coming across Scotland. I love it. Okay, what's the movie going to be called? I think it'd be called Chasing the Rainbow. So Ooh, okay, Chasing the Rainbow. I love it. Yeah.
1: I'm not sure if that's a thing in the US, but certainly within the UK, if you have a child or a baby after miscarriage, it's termed as a rainbow baby because it's basically your kind of a pot of gold after the storm. Yeah. And our, our challenge was called the Chasing the Rainbow Challenge because we were basically trying to chase the rainbow to to, to get to the end and to give us the the drive and the inspiration to fund private IVF, etc. So I think Chasing the Rainbow would be the, the, the best title
0: for that. Yeah. I love that, Les. Chasing the Rainbow, starring Will Ferrell. Awesome. I'm going to watch that movie. Yeah. Well, Les, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for all the work that you're doing to bring awareness to, to miscarriage. And um, to those listening, I hope you've been inspired today as much as I have. I hope Les and Alana's story has encouraged you to listen to the voice inside that calls you to adventure, because we want to hear your story next. If you have a story to tell or you need a nudge to create one, please send me an email. We'd also appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word by leaving a review and sharing or tagging Inspire Campfire in your social media. And until next time, I want to encourage you to get outside. Thank you for listening. Les, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you.